0: Father, who are we to bring before you gifts to give to the God of the universe who needs nothing, who owns everything, who's created everything for his glory? Who are we? And yet, because of Christ, you have made us sons and daughters that we might come before you not only in prayer, not only in praise, but also with cheerful and glad hearts to give back to you. Lord, so unite us with you in this act. May it not be a rote performance where we simply do a thing but may we be worshipful in this moment of giving back to you and would you be pleased to receive these our gifts take and use them according to all your good pleasure and lord make us continually grow in that cheerfulness of giving to you that you would make us glad not only to give of these our tithes and our offerings but of our lives as we live to not hoard the things that you've entrusted to us for ourselves, for our own gain, for our own pleasure. But Lord, cause us to gladly give them up for you, to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And while you're doing that, uh, just mention, uh, follow up on uh, since Clayton mentioned Sunday school and Zach talked about our rhythm and liturgy and worship, uh, to just tell you that our Sunday school this this fall is going to be on worship. Why we do what we do. How we do what we do. And so if that has been something that you've wondered about, whether it's been a specific thing in our liturgy or even how we approach the Lord, I want to encourage you to come and to be a part of that at the 9 o'clock hour we will take six weeks, and we'll look more in-depth at the the subject of worship. Uh, The other thing is our kids are going to be doing the same thing. Uh, Angela Viersma has agreed again to teach the the children's Sunday school class, and their curriculum is going to be covering the same thing we are going to do as students, adults, youth, and adults together uh, in the auditorium. And so this is going to be something I think that will be beneficial, and I encourage you to come and be a part. Look now at God's word. Let's begin reading in verse 5. This is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. This is God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we approach now your word, this is something that we are unable to do for ourselves for we with our human minds and our human abilities can read and ingest intellectually but what we need is spiritual. What we need is your spirit to move and to work and to take this your all-powerful word and plant it in our hearts which involves uprooting Lord. So would you uproot today and would you plant deeply your word that we might hear and understand and respond in obedience and faith. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If you weren't with us last week, we began looking at this broader section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses uh, 1 to 18 of chapter 6. We looked at verses 1 to 6 and then 16 to 18, so we're kind of circling back around. I wanted to do this to be able to spend more time on the Lord's Prayer. The theme, as we saw last week of this section, is hypocrisy, and many of us forget that when we think of the Lord's Prayer, although this isn't the only example of the Lord teaching his disciples to pray in this way, yet one of the examples, and the one that's probably most well-known is this one in Matthew, is set in the context of addressing hypocrisy. And so one of the things that might be the most obvious is that a hypocritical prayer is no prayer at all. If God is omniscient, and he is, and he knows all, and he knows the secret thoughts of our hearts, then how in the world could a prayer ever be effective if it was hypocritical, if it was motivated by some other uh, uh, motivation or intent of our heart, if it was directed to, to, to be heard by others, to be seen by others, now, we confess we're hypocrites, and even our best prayers, that we might call them, uh, are tainted or seeded with, with, uh, with hypocrisy. But the point that Jesus is making is don't, don't let your prayers be this way. Don't let it just be something that you do that's performative to be seen by others. Don't let it be something that you think that it's meritorious, as if you could merit the hearing of the Almighty God. Jesus has done that. That's why we're able to approach the throne boldly now in particular he is calling out those whose framework for religion is merely external those who have no inward reflection the scribes the pharisees there's no mourning over sin there's no weeping over the harm that they've done through the actual sins they've committed Uh, these are the ones who have convinced themselves although others may observe otherwise that they do all things right you've got a question about something in life boy do they have an answer they'll be glad to tell you how you have been doing things wrong and how they have got the right answers for you. They may do this with their words. They may do this with their actions. They may do it with both, but they are the teachers of all. If anyone is bothered or offended by them, it's their fault, their own weakness. If anyone disagrees with them, they are the ones that are in the wrong. And so it's in the context of Jesus calling out these hypocrites, as he calls them, that he now speaks against approaching God in prayer in such a way. He's going after the attitude of our hearts, the motivation. We tend to focus on the external. It's kind of our default to focus on the external. What do I have to do? What's my checklist? What do I need to perform? And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen and as we'll continue to see, is continually going after the heart. What is behind our motivation? And so, as we saw last week, he then used the framework of prayer Of giving and fasting to address this issue of hypocrisy. We're still in that section now as we look at verse 7 today and begin to go deeper in looking at the Lord's Prayer. It's still in that context of speaking against hypocrisy. The Lord's Prayer, as most of us know it, uh, as most Christians throughout history and around the world know it, could more rightly be called the Believer's Prayer, Because it's the Lord's instruction for us as to how to pray. This is then is how you should pray. So we could call this the disciples prayer or the believers prayer, the Christians prayer. That's maybe more fitting. We still call it the Lord's prayer. I'm going to refer to it as the Lord's prayer. I'm not saying that we need to change the name of it. But just in terms of our framework, our mindset, this is what the prayer is. It is a model of how we are to pray. Uh, In the context of speaking against the hypocrites who, who pray to be seen, who pray to be heard, this is a prayer, and it's, it's, it's a model for how we're to pray. It's directed to an audience of one, namely our Father in heaven. Now, because so many of us are familiar with this prayer that I would guess we could recite it right now if we didn't even have it printed in our bulletin, which we don't this week because we had the reading of the Lord's, uh, our God's revealed will, so we'll include it next week. just was too much to to squeeze in this week. But even if we didn't have it printed, my guess is if I said let's pray together now, you all could... Say it, because we know it, we've memorized it, we've heard it and said it so many times. And because of that, it becomes familiar to us, and we begin to lose the significance of the words. That's why I'm slowing down a little bit more for us to look more closely at what Jesus is teaching here. Now, I mentioned this isn't the only place that he taught his disciples to pray. There's a similar example of a recording of, of what we would call the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11. It's not the same instance that, that Luke is recording. There, Jesus had just finished praying and his disciples asked him directly, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And he uh, prayed a, or taught them to pray a similar prayer. And what we often do when we see something like this in the Gospels is we, we, we compare and contrast. Uh, scholars do this especially, um, and, and trying to figure out which one is the better or you know, what are the distinctions. And I, I don't think that's the intent of having two records of this prayer at all. I think the intent is that in both cases, Jesus is showing us, teaching us, this then is how you should pray. If any of us taught something, a subject or whatever, and we taught the same exact subject to two different groups, it would still have some differences. We would approach things differently. We would say things differently. We would recall things differently. And so we don't need to focus on the distinctions, but rather see what it is that Jesus is teaching us about the how of prayer. That's what's in mind here. So with that in mind, let's look now at verse 7 where we read Jesus say, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So far in the sermon, Jesus has made several negative statements as to how or what we should not do, how or what we should not um, or how we should not behave. And he compares and contrasts to groups like the hypocrites, the scribes, the Pharisees. He uses tax collectors. Here we see the word Gentiles. And depending on your translation, you may have wor- the word pagans here, and that's fitting. The, the, the word can be translated rightly either, uh, in either uh, English word, even though in English those two words seem to mean two different things. What was being conveyed here was those who are outside the family of faith, those who are outside the community of faith. That's what Jesus is, is attempting to address. And so what he is saying is even people who are in the visible church are not part of the invisible church. So here in the context of scribes and Pharisees, they're a part of the nation of Israel, but they're not part of the community of faith because they're walking according to their own righteousness. They do not walk by faith. And as we know, salvation has always been by faith. So that's what he's addressing here, those who are outside the community of faith. He describes their prayers as piles of empty phrases, vain words, that are prayed for the sake of being heard. We've all encountered people who maybe not with praying, but they just like to hear themselves talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk. talk. And we all know the awkwardness of, uh, uh, of being in those situations where you just want it to end. And some of you right now are thinking, isn't that you, Seth? Because every week you get up and you talk and you talk and you talk and you go way past 10, 1130 sometimes. Well, hopefully that's not the case with me. But the point is we all know those kinds of situations that they're awkward, that they're performative, that they're, uh, there's a need for attention. Uh, and that's what Jesus is addressing, that people who are, are praying for this purpose, that they, they want to seek attention. It's possible that Jesus has in mind here the scribes, because in Mark chapter 12, we read that he speaks of them saying, for a pretense, they make long prayers. It's the same notion. For for another motive, they add up their many words, they pile them up. I think we could also think of other pagan examples, like in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah confronts the priests of Baal. It says there that the priests of Baal called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon. I've never prayed that long. I don't know how long you've prayed. That's a long time, Uh, at least three, if not five or six hours from morning until noon, depending on how you slice the pie. That's a long time to pray. They were calling out. And If you remember that story from 1 Kings, you remember that they weren't successful in summoning Baal, and Elijah took the opportunity to mock them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Well, the point that Jesus is making here is that we should not seek to justify our prayers by the length of them from morning until evening, or by the eloquence of our words that we speak. I've heard many Christians confess that they're fearful to pray out loud or to pray in public because they don't know the right words. I want you to take comfort today in hearing from Jesus that the emphasis is not on the right words, but on the right heart, that is a heart that is sincere in its intent, to approach the throne of grace, to genuinely be heard by God. It is the prayer example that we saw last week as we looked at the, the, the Pharisee who prayed, thank you God that I'm not like all these terrible people, and then the tax collector who just said, "Have mercy on me, a sinner. A genuine prayer. So when pagans heap up empty words and phrases, they pray so many words to be heard, there is a sense, and I hope we see this, and this is what Elijah was mocking of hopelessness in that kind of prayer. There's no confidence of being heard to whomever they pray. Instead, the emphasis is on getting enough words in or stringing together the right combination of words so as to appease the one to whom they pray. Believers, on the other hand, are instructed in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence is how we are instructed to pray. And our boldness there, if you read all of of Hebrews 4, our boldness is not dependent upon our eloquence. It's not dependent upon the number of words we phrase. Our boldness is based upon our great high priest through whom we have a way to approach the throne of the God of the universe. One of the remarkable things about the Lord's Prayer itself is its brevity. It's really not a long prayer. Uh, that's a good reminder that our prayers don't have to be long. When Jesus said, This then is how you should pray, uh, I, there were word counts. I didn't write them down, but it's not a lot of words. You can count them later, not right now. Uh, but, but, you know, I think 70 or so words in English. And so uh, it, it's, it's not a long prayer. There's comfort in that. Our prayers don't have to be long. Another thing, though, we should keep in mind in the warning against empty phrases and many words is that we don't turn the Lord's Prayer into a vain repetition as well. And this is a temptation that we might have in thinking that these are somehow magical words, that if they're, they're, they're said repeatedly or said, you know, uh, with certain emphasis or over and over, that somehow they have more power as if our God needed to be roused. Uh, the whole mockery that Elijah uh, makes in, in 1 Kings 18 is to show that their God was no God. He didn't exist. And we should take comfort from that—that that our God is the true God, and He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is waiting and listening to us. That's like that's even incomprehensible for me, even as I say it right now. That the God of of the universe is listening, is waiting to hear from me. That's the approach that we have, and so we shouldn't take the Lord's prayer and then treat it as something that we just. Uh, kind of vainly say over and over again, or any good prayer that we might pray, as if repeating a prayer over and over again makes it more effective. This prayer is given to us as a guide. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, then, Jesus adds in verse 8 the comforting truth, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And although none of us would say it out loud, some of us are thinking right now in our hearts, and I think fairly so, why pray? If God knows our needs before we ask, why even pray? Or maybe you've thought this before, like, what's the point? He already knows. Why do I do this? But what does Jesus say? He says, your father already knows what you need before you ask. This then is how you should pray. Okay, there's our answer. This then is how you should pray. Let your request be made known before God. And so we see that there is an importance to prayer. Uh, not just in the command itself, but there's something that's, that's good, that's beneficial. The Psalms are full of examples of this as we read through them, where the writers pour their hearts out to God, often proclaiming things that God already... Well, God knows everything, but in the sense of things that are readily known. Like, why, why do we say this? Well, because our prayers are an act of worship. Jesus said... If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In our human understanding, we hear that and we think, genie in a bottle. And yet we know from the broader context of John, where that's recorded, that that's not at all what Jesus was saying. We also know that we rarely abide in him or let his words abide in us purely, and so that would disqualify the whole genie in the bottle question anyway. But the point is, is that this is designed, this is spoken to us, just as it is here, the Father knows your needs before you ask, to increase our faith in prayer, that we might come more boldly to the throne. We do not come to inform the one who is omniscient. He knows everything. We don't bring anything new to the table in our prayers. He is not surprised in our prayers, like, oh, I overlooked that. I missed that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. That doesn't happen in prayer. He knows everything. Instead, it is an act of worship that we confess our dependence and neediness upon him. It is an act of worship that we come before him and say, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. I need help. Have mercy upon me. Our prayers of petition are an act of worship through which God is pleased to hear us. Again, I find that something nearly incomprehensible. Our requests are bolstered in confidence by this truth that he already knows what we need before we ask him and yet he tells us, bring them boldly before my throne. R.C. Sproul helpfully explains, we cannot give him information that he lacked before we informed him. We cannot correct his counsel showing that what he is determined to do is wrong. God does not have a plan B, that he puts in motion at our request. We pray because it changes us. We pray also because God uses our prayer as the means to bring about the ends that he has decreed from all eternity. God commands us to pray and to do so earnestly, but we do not pray to instruct him or give him our counsel. Imagine, and some of you may not have to imagine, but imagine having someone on earth who was your benefactor. Uh, The perfect earthly father that was there for you anytime you needed it and, and regularly reminded you, hey, if you need help, I'm here. And not only were they the kind of person that was willing to help, they had the means to help and that they had the track record. They had proven they were there in the past. If we had such a person in our lives, would we then not with confidence go to them when we were in trouble? when we needed help, and some of us have. Some of us know this, like, you know, rubber meets the road kind of experience. We've gone and found help in time of trouble. Even more than any person has ever helped us, even the perfect earthly father, our heavenly father, knows our needs. He has made a way for us to come to him through the Son, and he has promised to meet our needs according to his riches and glory. So we are not then to do like the pagans do and string together certain words or phrases, thinking that if we repeat them over and over again, we will somehow gain God's attention. We are to pray humbly and sincerely, yet boldly, acknowledging who he is and coming in true faith to the one who hears our every prayer, no matter how feeble or unworthy we think our words are. Looking now in verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. I've said it more times than I can count already this morning. That means it is a model. Pray then like this. He doesn't say pray these exact words. He says pray then like this. It is a model for how we are to pray, how we are to approach the throne of grace. We see in the prayer is an opening, an invocation, an address Hallowed be your name, or our Father in heaven, rather. And then six petitions in two groups of three. We'll look at the first one today. The priority is clearly on the first. It is directed to God for his namesake, for the glory of his reign, and according to his will. But the second subordinate priority on our needs are tied to the first. They're all linked, that our needs would be met in order that we would hallow his name, uh, see his kingdom come, long for his kingdom to come, submit for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that our sins would be forgiven to that end, that our enemy would be uh, uh, defeated to that end. So they're all tied together. And yet there's a breadth to these six requests that cover just about every aspect of our lives that we can imagine. Knox Chamblin writes, "...the Lord's Prayer in Greek is a literary masterpiece." It manifests a sevenfold structure and address, followed by two sets of three petitions each. The second set rests on the first. Both are theocentric. The holy, sovereign God may be trusted to meet his people's needs. He goes on, so carefully balanced are these three clauses that at the end of verse 10, we read, On earth as it is in heaven, it is probably to be joined to all three, not just the third. So the lines are conceptually connected in the closest way. When God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom will have fully come. And when that happens, his name will be universally hallowed. So there is logic and there is connection into this model of prayer. So the the, the instruction, pray then like this, is that this is not a prescription for exactness. This is not a word for word, although we're certainly... Uh, uh, We certainly do pray the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying it word for word, but it's given to us as a pattern to follow, a pattern to model our prayers. I think there's benefit to knowing the Lord's Prayer, even just to frame our prayers as a model. I think it's a benefit to knowing the Lord's Prayer when we don't know what else to pray, that we go back to that. Uh, when we, when we need something to help us pray, I think it's beneficial to us corporately to pray together, which we would have done if we, we'd had the time this morning. We'll do it next week because we're still in the Lord's prayer. Uh, I think, I think it's a good thing. It's, this is, it's not a bad thing to know the Lord's prayer or pray the Lord's prayer, but we just don't want it to turn into a vain repetition where we treat it as some kind of magic spell that if we say it, then somehow that has more effect than any other prayer. It is a model for how we are to pray. And so then the opening words, the instruction, our Father in heaven. And so prayer is directed to God who is our Father who is in heaven. This means that those who are his children are those who can call him Father. Not everyone can call God Father. As we saw last week, God shows his common grace to all, uh, all is creation, including mankind, yet not all are his children. Salvifically, only those who have been born again, have been given the spirit, are able to then approach the father, as we read in, last week as well in, in Galatians 4.6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is It is those who are his children who can call him Father. We see that he is... My father, he's your father. That means he's our father. There's a sense of collectiveness in our prayers that even when we pray in solitude, we are joining our prayers with other believers around the world. There's also a sense that we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for each other, and not just for those that we know, but we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who we don't know. Uh, There's a sense of connectedness that we all call on the same father, and so we pray as we approach the throne for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Third, we're instruction, instructed that God is in heaven, which points to his transcendence. Now, we know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. We know that God is near to us, as we see in the phrase, our father. If our father uh, communicates his eminence, his closeness, then in heaven communicates his transcendence, or the fact that he is high and lofty. He is in heaven. Ecclesiastes 5, we don't read from Ecclesiastes very often, but Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. There's a sense of our attitude must be humble and reverent. And I, I do think we can pray honestly. I do think we call God our friend. I think that we can approach him boldly but we must never do so in a chummy, for lack of a better word, sense. You know, hey, dude, uh, that, that's not how we approach the God of the universe. There is to remain a reverence for him. And so what we see here is this really beautiful balance of intimacy and fear, of knowing and yet being ignorant, of being a created being and yet being able to approach the holy creator our father in heaven and then we come to the first petition Hallowed be your name now in our days we understand names don't have the significance that they did in ancient times if you've grown up in the church or spent any time or sunday school you've learned about the significance of names in ancient times that names represented who a person was often their character we see names changed When something significant happens in a person's life sometimes. Uh, So names were more significant than they are to us in our day. But this is especially true in how God revealed himself to his people through the revelation of his names. In the Old Testament, we see God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is El Elyon, God Most High. He is Adonai, the Lord, our Master. He is Jehovah. I am who I am, the self-existent one. And so for us to pray that God's name would be hallowed is simply that we would pray that he would be revered for who he is. Just like we, what we read in, in the, the, the confession this morning, or from the catechism this morning, uh, that we would pray that his name would be hallowed, meaning that he would be revered. His name is representative of, of who he is, that our lives, our reflection, our, our, our behavior would never take his name in vain, so to speak. Again, we could go back to the Psalms for examples of how this is done. Because again and again, as we read through the Psalms, we see in their, in their phrases, in their petitions to God, mixed with his character and his names, who he is. And as we read and study, hopefully, hopefully it is not just merely an intellectual assent to these things being true, but hopefully as we read and study and maybe even sing the Psalms, our hearts are lifted, we're moved. We're drawn up in worship because of who this amazing and glorious God is. So this prayer is then that we would all and others with us arrive at such a reverence for God, such a worship of the Almighty One who was and is and is to come. That is, we are praying for others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Hallowed be your name. Lord, would you bring others to hallow your name? We petition God to make his name known among all the peoples of the world world, that his name would be hallowed. We pray that it would happen that men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue would come to know and worship the true God. As we read in Psalm 34, "O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That is the Old Testament version of hallowed be your name. That's what the prayer is getting at. Next, the second of the three petitions, your kingdom come. Now, I've already mentioned that these are all connected. Their structure indicates all three petitions are linked to the final phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying that the kingdom would be manifest on earth as it is in heaven. And as his name is hallowed among all peoples, his kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven. Now, the kingdom of God is, is one of Matthew's central themes. We've seen it already. We saw it from the very beginning. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He calls people to repentance, and he announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus, early in his ministry, announces the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus repeats that call to people, indicating that he, something unique has happened with his arrival. We call it the inauguration of the kingdom. Uh, you know, the kingdom of God is, uh, but, but in terms of the kingdom of God on earth, there was something unique that happened when Jesus came. It changed, changed everything, right? And so we call that the inauguration. But we understand that it's not the consummation the kingdom is coming. It has come, it is come, and it will come. And so we, we use phrases like the now and the not yet to talk about the tension that this brings. But the kingdom has come, is coming, and will come in its fullness and finality when Jesus returns. So we're praying right now that his kingdom would come into the hearts and lives of people everywhere. It's another, it's, there's a missional component to this. Now, as Presbyterians, we are well known for our confession of God's sovereignty. He has not only created all things, but he rules sovereignly over all things. So why do we pray for his kingdom to come or his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, the prayer is not so much about God getting his way. The prayer is about us acknowledging that he is God, that he is sovereign. And so it is very much about evangelism. It's very much about missions that we're mindful of that, that other people would come to see and to know and to live as if God was sovereign, that they would submit to the God of the universe. But it isn't just about missions. It is about us. And it must be about us. Because if all we do is pray for other people to submit to the reign of King Jesus, I think we miss the whole intent of the prayer. We must submit to the reign of King Jesus. And this is an everyday kind of prayer. This is a moment by moment kind of prayer. This is something that all of us need at all times that we're never we've never mastered this that we fully submit to King Jesus. Are we gentle and lowly, seeing our spiritual poverty and neediness or do we think more highly of ourselves than we ought? Do we grieve over our sins? understanding the particulars of our actual sins, confessing them so as to enjoy the cleansing every day? Are we self-controlled in the various powers that we enjoy, or do we exploit them for our own gain? Are we satiated by the theology that we learned years ago, or do we hunger to grow and to live out that knowledge in keeping with the law of love? Do we show mercy, not just when it is easy and convenient, but when it is hard and it costs us more than we want to give up. You see, we may think of praying for God's kingdom to come as just about evangelism, other people to submit, but it must first be that I would submit. Every moment of every day. Those questions that I just asked, those are my paraphrase of the first five Beatitudes. We could have kept going through the Beatitudes, right? So take something like the Beatitudes and and use these as a prayer that, that, that you would submit to the reign of Jesus. Take the fruit of the Spirit. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Our need to submit to Christ's reign in our heart is an unending need. We will never fully submit. So this prayer can be a daily, moment-by-moment prayer. It's like the game of whack-a-mole right? A little talk about the little legalist that pops his head up all the time. What about the little rebel that pops his head up all the time? And you think you've got this area mastered over here and he pops his head up over here. This is a continual striving, a continual battle for the believer. So let us pray for the kingdom reign of Jesus to come in the hearts and lives of others all around the globe. But first, let's pray for his reign to come into every nook and cranny of our wondering and deceptive hearts. Then we ask for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, you can see how everything flows into the next, the certain logic, his name being hallowed, his kingdom reign expands, and that the result is that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, some may wonder, and again, why we pray for God's will to be done. We talked about God being sovereign. Uh, isn't his will always done? Yes, it is, right? But we need to distinguish what the prayer is getting at here. There's a sense of God's uh, will that is, is it's his decree or it's his determination. What will come to pass? There's no stopping it. He has decreed it. And then there is his revealed will for us. And what we tend to focus on and spend the most time on is trying to figure out his hidden or unrevealed will for us. Uh, we we, we want to know who we're supposed to marry or if, which house we're supposed to buy or if we're supposed to take a certain job or how we're to prepare for our future. We spend all of our time worrying about that. God doesn't reveal any of that to us in his word, those specifics. He doesn't answer any of those questions. Instead, in his word, he reveals specifics that will impact and direct all of those questions and more. First, or First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will for what? Your sanctification. You want to know what God's will is for your life? It says it right there, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Your sanctification, your growth in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be more and more like Jesus. All other matters about jobs, marriage, finances, dreams are subordinate to my being conformed into the image of Christ. And I would argue are at work for my sanctification. All those things that we fret about, all those things that we worry about getting just right, you know, we don't want to mess it up. God, what is your will in this? All of those serve my sanctification. That is what we're praying for, that we would understand what God's revealed will is for us, that we would do his revealed will that he's already told us, oh man, this is what I want from you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what the prayer is getting at. When we pray for God's will to be done, we could pray again through the Beatitudes. We could pray through the fruit of the Spirit. We could pray through the passage that we looked at last week in Romans 12 and prayerfully work through it. We take the Ten Commandments. We could take Philippians chapter 2, any of these passages, and begin to take them and flesh them out in prayer For God to do the work that we so desperately need. That is to forge our hearts in the furnace of his grace. That we would look more and more like Jesus. This is the prayer. That it would all happen on earth as it is in heaven. Every creature in heaven perfectly obeys the will of God. Perfectly carries out the kingdom mission. Perfectly honors God for who he is. And one day that reality will come here. Heaven on earth. When Christ returns. But until that time, we pray that this transformation would continue, that it would first in our hearts and lives uh, begin to occur in us, and then we pray for it in others as well, to the uttermost parts of the world. This morning, we sang what may have been a, a new hymn for some of you. It's not new, but it may have been the first time you sang it. Um, it's, it's old, the one by Horatius Bonar. Fill Thou My Life, O Lord My God. Um, it it reason that we, we, we sang it, I hope you saw this, is it really portrays this holistic picture of submitting to God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the verses says praise, the, the, the song's title, fill, fill Me or Fill Thou My Life, praise in the most common things of life, its goings out and in, praise in each duty and each deed, however small and mean. That's what the Lord's Prayer, I mean, this, this is the Lord's Prayer in action, that we would, every duty, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, no matter when no one is watching, that we would be filled with praise to live for the glory of God, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that his reign would be in our hearts. We're going to close our service by singing, Jesus shall reign, and one of the lines in there speaks of his kingdom, stretching from shore to shore that there is, there is no, uh, what was the, the quote from Sproul? There's, there, there's no inch or no molecule that God isn't sovereign over. Uh, there's no ground. I, think, I don't think it's him. I think he used to quote it. It's probably somebody older than that. But the point is, is, is his, his reign stretches over all things. We're about to sing that. And holy, 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 we sang, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Meaning what? That we see not only this expanse Of the kingdom prayer, of of the the Lord's prayer for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just about our hearts and minds, but it it speaks about creation as well. Creation serves as a reminder as it groans. We read about this in Romans 8. It was pointed out to me providentially this week on, on Friday as I was still working on my sermon. I got a text message from Mike Malone, who was a former pastor uh, and he uh, texts a group of pastors. He prays for us regularly, and just reminds us of that. And this week, though, he sent a, a, a screenshot of a devotional that he was reading, and uh, and it quotes uh, the devotional is by Tim Keller. It quotes Psalm ninety-eight, eight, saying, "Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy." The, he, and then Keller writes, "The imagery of the trees and fish praising God, with the rivers and mountains clapping and singing, is more than just poetry." Romans 8, 18 to 25, says that nature was made to be far more alive and glorious than it is in its current state. Modern philosophies cannot fathom that the natural world will not come into its own right until the human race is made righteous again. Jesus will come to restore that ancient harmony. So our future hope is powerful. If rivers and mountains will be like this when he returns, what will we be like? (laughs) What we pray for in the Lord's Prayer is beyond our comprehension. A glorious future that no eye has seen, that no mind has imagined, but it will come. Heaven will come to earth, and all will be made right, everything as it should be. And this will happen because of what Christ has done for us. In his death, by forgiving our sins, he has accomplished our redemption, yet not just our redemption, but the redemption of the world itself, of the creation itself, bringing us out of darkness into his kingdom of light. And when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king and Lord of all, and mountains and trees will clap their hands. Behold, he is now making all things new. In that day, our faith will become sight, and we will see and experience the completion of that work. And so we pray now with great hope and with great anticipation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, that is simply our prayer. But allow me, Lord, to nuance it a little bit. Let let me say this. Would Would you do this where we most need it? not in politics, not in economics, not in world powers. Lord, we need your kingdom to come and your will to be done and your name to be hallowed in our hearts. In our hearts. Lord, only you can do this, and we pray that you would. And then we carry that prayer to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, would you do this in others? Would you cause them to taste and see that the Lord is good? Would we be able to say together to uh, to people all around the world, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name together. Lord, may we be ever committed to the work of seeing your name made great among the nations. So, Lord, we join these prayers together to you, our Father, we ask that you would hear and bless and work according to your will and increase our confidence as we do pray, Lord, that you do hear and that you do work and that you will accomplish all that you will. Strengthen our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.